Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Malachi Orozco. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kunz. Chrysoprase. Wonderful things are told of the virtue of the chrysoprase, for Volmar states that if a thief sentenced to be hanged or beheaded should place this stone in his mouth, he would immediately escape from his executioners. Although we are not informed in what way this fortunate result was attained, it seems likely that the stone was believed to make the thief invisible, and thus possessed a virtue often attributed to the opal. A strange story regarding a magic stone reputed to have been worn by Alexander the Great is related by Albertus Magnus. According to this recital, Alexander, in his battles, wore a praise in his girdle. On his return from his Indian campaign, wishing one day to bathe in the Euphrates, he laid aside his girdle, and a serpent bit off the stone, and then dropped it into the river. Even Albertus, who is far from critical, admits that the story seems like a fable, and it probably belongs to a comparatively late period. As the term praise is used very loosely by early writers, this victory stone may have been an emerald or possibly jade. Coral the appreciation of coral as an ornament or for amulets seems to presuppose a certain development of civilization, for savage tribes greatly prefer glass ornaments. Many attempts have been made to introduce coral beads instead of glass beads among such tribes, but with no success, as the cheaper but brighter glass always commands a higher price. To still tempests and traverse broad rivers in safety was the privilege of one who bore either red or white coral with him. That this also stanched the flow of blood from a wound, cured madness, and gave wisdom, was said to have been experimentally proved. Coral, which for twenty centuries or more was classed among the precious stones, to retain its power as an amulet, must not have been worked, and in Italy only such pieces are valued for this purpose, as have been freshly gathered from the sea, or have been cast up by the sea on the shore. To exercise all its power against spells or enchantments, coral must be worn where its brilliant color makes it conspicuous. If, however, it should by accident be broken, the separate pieces have no virtue, and the magic power ceases, as though the spirit dwelling in the coral had fled from its abode. The peasant women are careful to guard the coral they wear for a special purpose from the eyes of their husbands, for the substance is believed to grow pale at certain seasons, regarding its pristine hue after a short interval of time. Indeed, the women believe that the coral shares their indisposition with them. All this serves to show that a kind of vital force is believed to animate the material, gaining or losing in vigor according to certain conditions and finally disappearing when the form is broken. These beliefs are all clearly traceable to the animistic ideas of primitive man. Diamond 
The diamond is to the pearl as the sun is to the moon. And we might well call one the king gem and the other the queen gem. The diamond, like a knight of old, brilliant and resistant, is the emblem of fearlessness and invincibility. The pearl, like a lady of old, pure and fair to look upon, is the emblem of modesty and purity. Therefore, it does not seem unfitting that the diamond should be presented as a token to the pearl, and that pearls should go with the diamond. The virtues ascribed to this stone are almost all directly traceable, either to its unconquerable hardness, or to its transparency and purity. It was therefore thought to bring victory to the wearer, by endowing him with superior strength, fortitude, and courage. Marbidus tells us it was a magic stone of great power, and served to drive away nocturnal specters. For this purpose it should be set in gold, and worn on the left arm. For St. Hildegard, the sovereign virtue of the diamond was recognized by the devil, who was a great enemy of the stone, because it resisted his power by day and by night. Rueus calls it a gem of reconciliation, as it enhanced the love of a husband for his wife. Cardano takes a more pessimistic view of the qualities of the diamond. He says, It is believed to make the wearer unhappy. Its effects, therefore, are the same upon the mind as that of the sun upon the eye, for the latter rather dims than strengthens the sight. It indeed renders fearless, but there is nothing that contributes more to our safety than prudence than fear. Therefore, it is better to fear. The diamond was often associated with the lightning, and was sometimes believed to owe its origin to the thunderbolt, but we do not recall having seen elsewhere the statement made in an anonymous Italian manuscript of the 14th century. Here it is expressly asserted that the diamond is sometimes consumed or melted when it thunders. Certainly that the same force that was supposed to have formed the stone should be able to dissolve it is not an illogical idea. That the diamond can be entirely consumed at a high temperature was a fact not known in Europe in the 14th century, and therefore the belief in the destructive effect of the electric current must have arisen from the superstitious or poetic fancies, and not from any vague conception of the true nature of the diamond. In the Talmud we read of a gem, supposed to have been the diamond, which was worn by the high priest. This stone served to show the guilt or innocence of one accused of any crime. If the accused were guilty, the stone would grow dim. But if he were innocent, it would shine more brilliantly than ever. This quality is also alluded to by Sir John Mandeville, who wrote, It happens often that the good diamond loses its virtue by sin, and for incontinence of him who bears it. The Hindus classed diamonds according to the four castes. The Brahmin diamond gave power, friends, riches, and good luck. The Kshatriya diamond prevented the approach of old age. The Vaisya stone brought success, and the Sudra all manner of good fortune. On the other hand, in the treatise on gems by Buddhabhata, we read, A diamond, a part of which is the color of blood or spotted with red, would quickly bring death to the wearer, even if he were the master of death.
The Arabians and Persians, as well as the modern Egyptians, agree in attributing to the diamond a wonderful power to bring good fortune. And Rabbi Benoni, a mystic of the 14th century, treating of its magic virtues, asserts that it produces somnambulism, and as a talisman so powerfully attracts the planetary influences that it renders the wearer invincible. It was also said to provoke a state of spiritual ecstasy. An alchemist of the same century, Pierre de Boniface, asserted that the diamond made the wearer invisible. A curious fancy, prevalent in regard to many stones, attributed sex to the diamond, and it is therefore not surprising that these stones were also supposed to possess reproductive powers. In this connection, Sir John Mandeville wrote, They grow together, male and female, and are nourished by the dew of heaven, and they engender commonly, and bring forth small children that multiply and grow all the year. I have oftentimes tried the experiment that if a man can keep them with a little bit of the rock and water them with may-dew often, they shall grow every year, and the small will grow great. The following lines from a translation of the celebrated Orphic poem, written in the second century, show the high esteem in which the Adamas was held at that time. The evil eye shall have no power to harm him that shall wear the diamond as a charm. No monarch shall attempt to thwart his will, and e'en the gods his wishes shall fulfill. This probably refers either to colorless corundum, the so-called white sapphire, or to quartz. The writer is disinclined to believe that the ancients knew the diamond. The ancient Hindu gem treatise of Buddha asserts that the diamond of the Brahmin should have the whiteness of a shell or of rock crystal, that of the Kshatriya, the brown color of the eye of a hare, that of the Vaisya, the lovely shade of a petal of the Kadali flower, that of the Sudra, the sheen of a polished blade. To kings alone the sages assigned two classes of colored diamonds, namely those as red as coral and those yellow as saffron. These were exclusively royal gems, but diamonds of all other shades could be set in royal jewels. A typical diamond is thus described in a Hindu gem treatise. A six-pointed diamond, pure, without stain, with pronounced and sharp edges, of a beautiful shade, light, with well-formed facets, without defects, illuminating space with its fire and with the reflection of the rainbow. A diamond of this kind is not easy to find in the earth. According to a widespread superstition, the talismanic power of a diamond was lost if the stone were acquired by purchase. Only when received as a gift could its virtues be depended on. The same belief is noted regarding the turquoise, the spirit dwelling in the stone was thought to take offense at the idea of being bought and sold, and was supposed to depart from the stone, leaving it nothing more than a bit of senseless matter. If, however, the diamond, or turquoise, were offered as a pledge of love or friendship, the spirit was quite willing to transfer its good offices from one owner to another. The Talmud shows us that the Jewish rabbis sometimes endeavored to enliven their exhaustive discussions of ritual and legal questions by telling, quote, good stories, end quote, 
to each other. One of these may be given as illustrating at once the wild improbability of some of these recitals and the belief in the wonderful magic virtues of the diamond. Rabbi Jehuda of Mesopotamia used to tell, Once, while on board of a ship, I saw a diamond that was encircled by a snake, and a diver went to catch it. The snake then opened its mouth, threatening to swallow the ship. Then a raven came, bit off its head, and all the water around turned into blood. Then another snake came, took the diamond, put it in the carcass, and it became alive. And again it opened its mouth, in order to swallow the ship. Another bird then came, bit off its head, took the diamond, and threw it on the ship. We had with us salted birds, and we wanted to try whether the diamond would bring them to life, so we placed the gem on them, and they became animated, and flew away with the gem. It is said that the first large diamonds discovered by Europeans in South Africa were found in the leather bag of a sorcerer. Although large stones or fragments of rock are usually the objects of adoration as fetishes in Africa, any small stone that is wrapped in colored rags and worn on the neck may be regarded in the same way. Several competent authorities state that these diamonds were the playthings of some Boer children. Al-Kazwini relates as follows the marvelous tale of the Valley of Diamonds. Aristotle says that no one except Alexander ever reached the place where the diamond is produced. This is a valley connected with the land Hind. The glance cannot penetrate to its greatest depths, and serpents are found there, the like of which no man hath seen, and upon which no man can gaze without dying. However, this power endures only as long as the serpents live, for when they die, the power leaves them. In this place, summer reigns for six months and winter for the same length of time. Now, Alexander ordered that an iron mirror should be brought and placed at the spot where the serpents dwelt. When the serpents approached, their glance fell upon their own image in the mirror, and this caused their death. Hereupon Alexander wished to bring out the diamonds from the valley, but no one was willing to undertake the descent. Alexander therefore sought counsel of the wise men, and they told him to throw down a piece of flesh into the valley. This he did. The diamonds became attached to the flesh, and the birds of the air seized the flesh and bore it up out of the valley. Then Alexander ordered his people to pursue the birds, and to pick up what fell from the flesh. Another writer states that the mines are in the mountains of Serendib, Ceylon, in a very deep gorge, in which are deadly serpents. When people wish to take out the diamonds, they throw down pieces of flesh, which are seized by vultures and brought up to the brink of the gorge. There such of the diamonds as cling to the flesh are secured, these are of the size of a lentil or a pea. The largest pieces found attain the size of a half-bean. In his version of the tale, 
one form of which appears in the seventh voyage of Sinbad the sailor, Tefashi states that the finest corundum gems were washed down the streams that flowed from Adam's Peak on the island of Ceylon. In time of drought, however, this source of supply ceased. Now it happened that many eagles built their nests on the top of this mountain, and the gem-seekers used to place large pieces of flesh at the foot of the mountain. The eagles pounced upon these and bore them away to their nests, but were obliged to alight from time to time in order to rest, and while the pieces of flesh lay on the rock, some of the corundums became lightly attached to this, so that when the eagles resumed their flight, the stones dropped off and rolled down the mountainside. These oft-repeated tales are explained by Dr. Valentine Ball as originating in the Hindu custom of sacrificing cattle when new mines were opened, and leaving on the spot a certain part of the meat as an offering to the guardian deities. As these pieces of meat were soon carried away by birds of prey, the legend arose that the diamonds were obtained in this way. This custom still prevailed in some parts of India when Dr. Ball wrote. The effect exercised by Hindu superstition on even the most enlightened Europeans of our day may be recognized in the fact that the gifted prima donna, Madame Matterlink, the wife of the foremost living European poet, has confessed that she wears a diamond suspended on her forehead because her husband believes that this brings good fortune to the wearer. This forehead jewel is characteristically Hindu and enjoys in India the reputation of being especially auspicious. Emerald The emerald was believed to foreshow future events, but we do not learn whether visions were actually seen in the stone, as they were in spheres of rock crystal or beryl, or whether the emerald endowed the wearer with a supernatural foreknowledge of what was to come. As a revealer of truth, this stone was an enemy of all enchantments and conjuration. Hence, it was greatly favored by magicians, who found all their arts of no avail if an emerald were in their vicinity when they began to weave their spells. To this supernatural power inherent in the stone, enabling it to quicken the prophetic faculty, may be added many other virtues. If anyone wished to strengthen his memory or to become an eloquent speaker, he was sure to attain his end by securing possession of a fine emerald. And not only the ambitious, but also those whose hearts had been smitten by the shafts from Cupid's bow found in this stone an invaluable auxiliary, for it revealed the truth or falsity of lovers' oaths. Strange to say, however, the emerald, although commonly assigned to Venus, was often regarded as an enemy of sexual passion. So sensitive was the stone believed to be in this respect that Albertus Magnus relates of King Bella of Hungary, who possessed an exceptionally valuable emerald set in a ring that, when he embraced his wife while wearing this ring on his finger, the stone broke into three parts. In rabbinical legend, it is related that four precious stones were given by God to King Solomon, one of these was the emerald. The possession of the four stones is said to have endowed the wise king with power over all creation. 
as these four stones probably typified the four cardinal points, and were very likely of red, blue, yellow, and green color, respectively, we might conjecture that the other three stones were the carbuncle, the lapis lazuli, and the topaz. After stating that the emerald sharpens the wits and quickens the intelligence, Cardano declares that it therefore made people more honest, for, quote, dishonesty is nothing but ignorance, stupidity, and ill-nature, end quote. The same writer adds that the stone was believed to make men economical, and hence make them rich. But of this he was very skeptical, since the experience of others, as well as his own, showed that the emerald possessed very little power in this direction. A talismanic emerald, once the property of the Mughal emperors of Delhi, has recently been shown in Europe. The stone is of rich, deep green, and weighs seventy-eight carats. Around the edge, in Persian characters, runs the inscription, quote, He who possesses this charm shall enjoy the special protection of God, end quote. Emerald sharpened the wits, conferred riches, and the power to predict future events. To evolve this latter virtue, it must be put under the tongue. It also strengthened the memory. The light-colored stones were esteemed the best, and legend told that they were brought from the nests of griffins. Gypsum Gypsum, when fibrous, the fibers being long and straight, is known as satin spar. This material is frequently cut rounded, or en cabochon, across the fibers. Sometimes it is cut in the form of beads, or of pear-shaped drops, which are mounted in earrings, scarf-pins, or necklaces. The material is frequently found in Russia, England, and elsewhere, and is cut in England or Russia. Some of the cut stones are mounted in brass, or gilded brass, and sold as luck stones in Niagara, the claim being made that the satin spar was taken from beneath the falls at great peril, as occasionally small deposits of this kind of gypsum are found under the falls. From time to time, small consignments of this material have been sent to Japan, as the Japanese value it possibly on account of its purity, or owing to the fact that it has the effect of the cat's eye. It is quite cheap, and at the same time very soft, so that it can be scratched with the fingernail. That found in Russia is of a golden yellow or salmon color, and is worked into various ornaments, the one popular form being egg-shaped, and because of their form such objects are frequently given as Easter gifts. The same material is also known in Egypt, and is cut in the same egg form, the ornaments being called pharaoh's eggs, although just which pharaoh this refers to is not stated. They are also believed to possess qualities of protection and to bring good fortune. Hematite The virtues of the hematite were praised in an ancient gem treatise written by Ascalias of Babylon for Mithridates the Great, the king of Pontus, who died in 63 BC, a sovereign who was passionately fond of precious stones and possessed a splendid collection of them, both engraved and unengraved. Ascalius, as cited by Pliny, 
taught that human destinies were influenced by the virtues inherent in precious stones, and asserted that the hematite, when used as a talisman, procured for the wearer a favorable bearing of petitions addressed to kings, and a fortunate issue of lawsuits and judgments. It is a red oxide of iron, which, when abraded, shows a red streak, whence the name hematite, from the Greek hyma, blood, as an iron ore and hence associated with Mars, the god of war, this substance was also considered to be an invaluable help to the warrior on the field of battle if he rubbed his body with it. Probably, like the lodestone, it was believed to confer invulnerability. The high degree of skill possessed by the Pueblo workers is strikingly shown in a finely inlaid hematite cylinder found in Pueblo Bonito. The inlays are of turquoise and are designed to make the cylinder a conventional representation of a bird. The wings are indicated by turquoise inlays of pyramidal outline, curved so as to allow the curvature of the cylinder, the head being figured by a conical piece of turquoise attached to one end. This conical termination bore a small bird figure carved in relief. When we consider the difficulties the Indian workers had to overcome in the execution of this artistic task with the tools at their command, we can well realize that this object, probably an amulet, must have been considered very valuable and was most likely the property of someone of high rank in the tribe or community. Jacinth the jacinth was more especially recommended as an amulet for travelers because of its reputed value as a protection against the plague and against wounds and injuries, the two classes of perils most feared by those who undertook long journeys. Moreover, this stone assured the wearer a cordial reception at any hostelry he visited. It was said to lose its brilliancy and grow pale and dull if the wearer or anyone in his immediate neighborhood became ill of the plague. In addition to these qualities, the jacinth augmented the riches of the owner and endowed him with prudence in the conduct of his affairs. St. Hildegard, the abbess of Bingen, who died in 1179, gives the following details as to the proper use of the jachant, the jacinth. If any one is bewitched by phantoms or by magical spells, so that he has lost his wits, take a hot loaf of pure wheaten bread and cut the upper crust in the form of a cross, not, however, cutting it quite through, and then pass the stone along the cutting, reciting these words, May God, who cast away all precious stones from the devil, cast away from thee, N all phantoms and all magic spells, and free thee from the pain of this madness. The patient is then to eat of the bread. If, however, his stomach should be too feeble, unleavened bread may be used. All other solid food given to the sick person should be treated in the same manner. We are also told that if anyone has a pain in his heart, the pain will be relieved provided the sign of the cross be made over the heart while the above-mentioned words are recited. 
the wearer of a jacinth was believed to be proof against the lightning, and it was even asserted that wax that had been impressed by an image graven on this stone averted the lightning from one who bore the seal. That the stone really possessed this power was a matter of common report, it being confidently declared that in regions where many were struck by lightning, none who bore a jacinth were ever harmed. By a like miracle, it preserved the wearer from all danger of pestilence, even though he lived in an air charged with the disease. A third virtue was to induce sleep. Of this, Cardano states that he was in the habit of wearing rather a large jacinth, and had found that the stone, quote, seemed to dispose somewhat to sleep, but not much, end quote. He adds, in explanation of its slight efficacy, that his stone was not bright red, nor of the best sort, but of a golden hue, differing much from the best. End of chapter 3, part 2